this month's episode of <laughs> Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracing. And I am Corwin Heller. And we finally managed to do it after much uh, bothering, pestering on, on my part. Both movies have been watched by both of us, which means we can finally talk about them. Uh, so, Corwin Heller, are you ready to get started with this week's flicks? I am. All right. Do you want to start um, in the Great Depression or in uh, just after slash still kind of during the Great Depression, but at war? Corwin? Let's start with the Depression. All right. So well, that means that we will be starting with the 1969 film They Shoot Horses, don't they? Which was directed by Sidney Pollack, a screenplay by Robert E. Thompson and James Poe, based on the novel by Horace McCoy. The film stars Jane Fonda, Michael Sarazen, and Susanna York. Uh, this film had an estimated budget of can I fucking find it $4.86 million and had a box office of $12.6 million. So certainly a success, especially considering the time period. Uh, this film's tagline was they danced till they dropped, which is true. They dropped. Um, oh, they dropped. Now this film won an Oscar. It was best actor in supporting role for gig young. Uh, it was also nominated for many more Oscars. It was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Jane Fonda, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Susanna York, Best Director for Sidney Pollack, Best Writing, Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium for James Poe and Robert E. Thompson, Best Art Direction, Set Direction for Harry Horner and Frank R. McKelvey, Best Costume Design for a mononym, Don Feld, uh, Best Film Editing for Frederick Steinkamp and Best Music Score of a Musical Picture Original or Adaptation for Johnny Green and Albert Woodbury. Um, this film is about the lives of a desperate group of contestants intertwined in an inhumanely grueling dance marathon. Um, this was my film, so I will get us started. Uh, this is kind of, it's just, uh, feels like a relatively lesser known um, gem of a film with, which has accolades that I think, you know, you and I would have discussed much at, if, if this was a current film, you know, one best supporting actor was nominated for a bunch of big fancy things. It's a very good movie. And, and yet it's, it's certainly not one off discussed at this point in time, despite even Jane Fonda still working as an actress to this day. Um, and so I, I only just came upon it a, a, a few years ago, honestly. Um, and so it, it uh, still feels very new to me. I don't have like a big, long uh, you know, recollection of this or haven't seen it a bunch of times. And it's fucking devastating. It really is. And it's a, it, and it's a premise that doesn't sound horrible when it starts a dance marathon. And it's like... Because I think, you know, growing up in the time period that, that we grew up in, dance marathons in a, in are, are a thing that you know of, you know, like a, a, a frat at your college, whether it was yours or not, ha had one that raised money for charity or your school. The Penn State's like, literal thing. 
same thing with, with that, that's Pittsburgh's thing too. I did one with Matt back then. Fucking my high school had one. You know what I mean? Like, and you go and the marathon was timed. You know, it was like, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 hours or some shit like that. And then it ended and then, and then you went home and it was a thing that was like fun to do. You got a bunch of your friends together. You got like sponsored to, to go do it so you could raise money for charity. Like it's, it, it you know, it's a whole big to do. So to, to have that be the basis for what is a really horrible, like, you know, destitute environment is so off putting. And I think really helps to even now paint even harsher of a picture of what was truly that experience. You know, when you have something that you do at this point for joy and have to understand it through a retroactive lens that it was out of necessity or even worse in this instance, out of a, a combination of necessity and, and relatively sinister want for capitalistic entertainment. It's, it's rough. You know, we'll get into the ending as we go farther on, uh, which is, you know, no uh, land of milk and honey, but it's it's a movie where genuinely not too much stuff happens. But I think is absolutely capturing for the full two hours of the movie. I'm excited to hear what you think, Corwin. I will 100% agree with you. The premise of this and the idea of, well, both just having to live through the Great Depression, that in and of itself is just terrifying. But the idea of sitting through two months, essentially, of a dance marathon to the extent where your livelihood, you know, your ability to work, everything that you could possibly you know, put towards sustaining yourself is going towards this dance marathon to essentially win the lottery um, is terrifying, especially with uh, what you are possibly left with when you lose is terrifying. I found the execution to be extraordinarily boring. Wow. I just, I felt for the premise and I felt for the situation. I didn't feel for the characters. And I just could not sustain myself off of this. I just thought it was very slowly paced. I didn't think that. And you know what, granted, this is a, what, 50-year-old movie at this point. So the expectations of the detriments that would come from, you know, a torturous, you know, saw experience is dramatically expanded and and the expectations are significantly higher. But I just was kind of almost disappointed with how it was portrayed uh, i don't know how else to put it so where where do you feel as though there were gaps for you i struggled to outside of the uh the couple who the wife was uh pregnant 
and uh, the main male character, um, the one who stares off at the sunset. Um, I just, I, I really didn't find myself actively rooting for them to the point where I was emotionally connected with their struggles. Like Jane Fonda's character, I just, I could not put my weight behind. I don't know why. I don't have, you know, a huge reason. I didn't think she was bitchy. I didn't think she was, you know, a dick to the other contestants. I didn't think she cheated her way in. And oh, see, this, this is a very deserving. interesting reading. Of I this. just, I'm surprised that you were rooting for people because that's not how I watched it. Oh, I, I watched this as like for anyone other than the main guy. Horrible. Just, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I wasn't actively rooting for anybody to succeed because as you know the end of the film informs there's no winning and success will be hollow because your life is still going to suck you know it's the great depression i'm not actually coming away with any grand prize right which again doesn't get revealed to the end but i see it more as or i watched it more as like Jane Fonda is doing this to survive. This is not because it's not like you're watching um, like a movie like Chef, where it's like he's doing something that we all generally describe as fun cooking. And the journey is to watch him discover having more fun doing it because he took it too seriously. Right. Right. It's very much so like I'm only here because I have to be. And, and I am doing this in like a Hunger Games style survival thing, you know, and Jane Fonda really is like the anchor to I don't want to be here. I have to be here. This is out of sheer desperation. And I think I took that from it as well. I viewed this as more of a survival film and, you know, rather than like, oh, let's watch a game show. I, I think the the crux of it is just the pacing of it and the way that they kind of laid out these, I don't want to say events, but the obstacles that kind of spring up is it felt like it's like, okay, this is very set in stone, very regimented where, okay, here's the events of one day we show rest and how tired they are. Then we'll show another day down the line. And then them after very tired or them getting up and then an event and then tired. And it was almost as if each one of those segments were always the same period of time to where it caused it to drag out to where the, I found myself asking like, are we there yet? Where are we getting? Like, it, is this part over more than I was asking myself, Oh, what's going to happen how are they going to make it through this? I find it, How, and I, I found that to be a function, not a failure. Hmm. Like when they show you how long it's been, I think the first time they tell you how long it's been beyond like the 20 minute mark of the film, it had it, like 49 days had elapsed. And I remember thinking like, oh <laughs> my you- <laughs> God, I thought we were like still a week or two in. And I think that the repetition or the repetitious nature of, of some of the 
events or a little bit of, I don't want to say monotony, but a little bit of the lack of information about how much time has passed and the lack of understanding Mm -hmm. of the passage of time from the characters is meant to inform how grueling this monotony is to them. You know, like you not understanding the time and being like, oh, we're doing this again. I think that's supposed to be you going. That's how they feel. You know what I mean? But it almost takes away from the fact that this isn't like it's not like your tiredness and exhaustion is linear as you go through this. It almost extrapolates where like if you do this for four days versus 10 days, you're going to be more tired, but you're not significantly more tired than you were after four days. If you're at the 10 day mark and the 48 day mark, it's almost as if I don't know how I'm physically conscious. And they do show that to some extent, but I feel like they lost the gravitas of how fucking crazy that number actually is to where this is your livelihood. Like, it's not like you're playing a game show anymore. Like, this is straight up squid games type shit. And I, I never felt it the weight of that as much as I like looking at it, just raw numbers should have like Quinn was talking about it to my parents yesterday, like describing the movie. And she's like, Oh yeah, it was like this uh, dance marathon over like, I don't know, 48, 72 hours. It's like, no, like it was like three months And you just don't, at least when we watched it, when I watched it, you know, what I took from it, I didn't feel that weight. And I think that's tough to do because I I can't, I can only agree because, again, I didn't think it had been that long either. Um, And I I think that really that's a limitation of time and capability. You know, it might be easier to get that in a longer form, like with shows because I don't know how you show that much passage of time without extending the feeling in some way. But I think if you do that, you lose some of the other points that get wrapped in. And I think to a certain extent, that's what you're supposed to be getting out of, you know, the brief respites that you do get when you go into the locker rooms of each side, like with the um, <laughs> one woman who, what was the term that they used for her? It wasn't, uh, geeking out it was um like the delusional one yeah yeah the one who played um Susanna York who played Alice uh there was a term for it, it, it essentially it was like a it, she was it's not geeking but it was something something like that breaking essentially breaking yeah. um and when she finally has that moment in the shower you know that's supposed to I think evoke not just the mental difficulties of the um of the journey but also the at the passage of time because she had had a previous episode earlier on. Um, but anyway, let's, let's leave this for the, for to, to the side for a moment. Uh, sure. And let's talk about, uh, I guess the guy who actually won an Oscar for this uh, uh, gig young man, hearing him talk about the business of all of this and, mm-hmm. you know, like him taking the dress and, you know, him talking about the financials at the at the end of the movie was gut wrenching. Like I couldn't help but feel like Jane Fonda 
you know, in that moment of like just or um or uh, uh, Michael Sarazin, um, when he because he tells him about the dress, um, just like repulsed by it, and that's definitely the feeling that you get, like that's the feeling you're supposed to have, and I also feel like it's such an indictment on capitalism because it felt like what I think Gig Young did such a great job of. It felt like he didn't want to be doing this shit either. But it's the Great Depression and he has to. You know what I mean? And so yeah, it's one of those, you know, great capitalists like, ah, oh, I don't want to be scamming you guys out of money. But, you know, oh, this market, I just I have to. Well, with nature, and yeah, but- and I think that's the indictment of capitalism there is that there, there's there's no way to do to get by when there's no money ethically. There's no way to do it. Like Gig Young is wrong. He is a gross character. And I think, well, not Gig Young, the uh, character Rocky. And what I think Gig Young does well is he shows that his character also knows he's a piece of shit and knows that if he, he doesn't operate as a piece of shit, he's also going to wind up like every, like he's, he knows how close he is to being one of the contestants, you know? Absolutely. It's almost the character you relate to the most because he's someone who, by all means, is the most prevalent in our society today that we are watching. You know, you know, that guy, you know how to relate to that guy, you know, you know, the people you would relate to that guy. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, character for me to consume because. Like, I dislike him. Like, I hate Rocky. But there's also an understanding of circumstance that I don't think garners sympathy from me, but makes me, because of the sympathetic display of it, makes me really turn an eye towards the system as a whole rather than just say, this is a problem with Rocky. You know what I mean? There's... Right. There's a difference between understanding and sympathy. Like you need to understand to sympathize, but just because you understand why someone's doing something doesn't mean you're sympathizing with how they're doing it. You know, and, like, yeah. And the difference I know between it being why one companies guy... do what they do to fuck people over. Right. I'm not about to be like, oh, it's OK that you guys are doing that. Well, and, and the difference between it being isolated to one guy versus it being systemic. You know, like I don't walk away from this movie thinking Gig Young character, Gig Young's character Rocky was the problem. Yeah, I walk away saying everybody is doing everybody that owns a business is doing what Gig Young's character is doing. And that's the problem. Yeah, capitalism. Woo. Worst. Yeah. I saw um, a textbook today that had a table for young elementary schoolers where it had capitalism, socialism, and communism in the three tables and literally were green, red, and red saying good, bad, terrible. It was just like, ah, that's where we are today. Good. Good. Education. The, the, the red really is to represent how much of a good comrade you are. Exactly. Let's be honest. Um, but 
Yeah, I guess uh, let's take this over to the end of the movie because um, I'm sure we're going to have a lot to say about our next movie as well. Uh, and were you ready for the ending? Um, it's one of those endings where like you see how this is narrated and you see that he was arrested and the entire time you're thinking, boy, what happens at the end of this film that causes him to be in such a predicament? And then it happens and it's like, boy, fuck me. I never saw that coming. Holy shit. It's, sure. it's interesting for um, a couple of reasons. So real quick, the actual ending itself, if you haven't watched the movie, um, well, one, watch it. But essentially what, what happens is you haven't watched it. What are you doing here? I know uh, Jane Fonda and Michael Sarazen realize that or get told essentially really by Gig Young that even if they win, even if they go out there and put up with this shit for another month, two months, however long, they're not actually making any money. You know, that that was it. They're, the the grand prize was what, a thousand dollars a person or some shit like that. Um, Fifteen thousand between them. Oh, sorry. They, thank you. Fifteen thousand dollars between the two of them. And. But it's less all of the expenses that they accumulate while they're there. Food, lodging, laundry. Uh, baths, all that stuff gets subtracted out and they've been doing it for months. So those expenses added up. And I'm sure that there's also plenty of funny accounting from Gig Young's character. And so oh, with that sure. realization, they essentially give up, right? The truly, and ag again, truly a, a microcosm of the systemic issue, which is you can work as hard as you possibly can. The system does not reward hard work. Pull anyway, yourself up by your bootstraps. Literally impossible in this instance, is it not? And in any instance. So they go out and Jane Fonda delivers a speech where she says to some extent, I've, I've, I've always been a loser. I'm done doing this. I'm done trying. I'm done failing. I'm done hurting. This is awful. Uh, and tries to kill herself and can't. And hands the gun to Michael Sarazin, who is perfectly understanding of her situation and kills Jane Fonda for her and then goes to jail. And it's interesting because in the intercuts that Corwin mentions where they show him in prison, I can't tell if this is because it's weird 60s filmmaking or if it was intentional. But the intercuts with the jail cell and the courtroom felt so surreal because of the, the, the stage production or the uh, production design that I was you almost wonder, did he die? And is this him waiting to get into heaven? You know, like is this a St. Peter situation? Because this looks so not of this earth. It does seem like it's almost out of uh, the Twilight Zone rather than yeah. how the rest of this film is shot. And, you know, it's very different. Yeah. <sighs> What really shocked me was how willing he was to just kind of like accept it and go along with it. Like, I don't think he was meant to be this, you know, dumb hick character who doesn't know the law and is like, yeah, you can't just kill people because they ask you to. But he was so mentally broken by the end that it was just like, well, shit, I'd love to do it myself. But uh, yeah, I'll help you out. You know, I definitely see that as being the better option. 
because it's not like he regrets his actions in those cutaway scenes. It's really just like, listen, guy, like, yeah, I, I did it. I don't see it as being a bad, like, you just don't get it, man. You just weren't there. Yeah, it, it feels as though, you know, when you first are introduced to him, he's just kind of like meek and quiet guy. And he really is that guy throughout, but he gets shaped so much by Jane Fonda's character, as well as the slog that they were put through with the um, the 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 dance marathon and you know that final discovery of what the cash price really would be uh, at the end uh, clearly just had broken his his uh, shattered any sense of maybe uh, hope that his character possibly could have represented going forward. Did you remember the title of the movie when it got dropped at the end? Like, did it click uh, yes. for you there? I was like, oh, that's the Peter Griffin, you know, clip of like, ah, they, he said the he said the line. And all this because it's such an interesting title because it's such a mouthful. It almost feels kind of goofy. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like there's no serious today. way to say it. Like but the only one it, I can even think of in the past 10 years is three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And even that, I don't think when you get to the point in each of these respective movies, it carries the weight that the line does in this movie. Like mm-hmm. when he says they shoot horses, don't they? It fucking hurts. At least with like three billboards, you understand why it's called that. This yeah, is right just away. like, this is a random line. Okay, I don't know what it means. I imagine they'll explain it. And then you're two and a half hours into a film and you kind of forgot like you're watching the film, you're you're intent on watching the film. You're not thinking, but why was it named this film? And then they drop it and it is a. Oh, right. Why? It's a punch to the gut. Not a descriptor. Right. And obviously it serves, again, the, the larger systemic point, which is that, um, you know, they uh, ranchers shoot horses once they get beyond their their usefulness um, or, or not even just uh, ranchers. But also uh, if you're if you race horses, uh, if a horse breaks a leg, you know, they kill it. And the idea there is that it's beyond its usefulness. It is it has now ceased to be able to increase productivity and production. And so there is clearly that, that capitalistic element of it as well, but it also just informs so grossly but accurately how clearly Jane Fonda had viewed herself and and how much of that Michael Sarazen was able to uh, intuit from her final speech. And it really, from a societal and a personal perspective, is just, oh, God, hard. Honestly, I think that this might be the most powerful aspect of the film oh my, with okay. how they named it. Not not even like the scene itself, but the aspect of naming it this and also having it be the quote unquote punchline of the film. Because, I mean, if you have that be the final line, it's it's a line. It's a powerful line. You get it. But it being this out of nowhere almost ridiculous name for a film and having it be something that every time you hear the film's name 
it brings you back to the true meaning of what this film is about. And I don't know if it, you know, for a layman, for just uh, someone going out to see this hot new movie that was nominated for an Oscar back in 1967 that you would really dig into without it being forced upon the spotlight of this film because of it being the title, um, which I almost appreciate because you, you almost can't do it nowadays with how people talk about it because it's not something that's going to stay under wraps in the world of Twitter. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah. I, we will wrap up. Uh, but last thing I will say is that it also, this was now my, my second watch. Um, and it feels very different on a second watch because mm-hmm. it makes watching Jane Fonda feel like now that, you know, the ending, it makes watching what she's doing really feel life or death because it is right which you which you won't know until unless you read the book prior or you had seen the movie prior but it really colors her performance so much more on a second viewing because you know that she is quite literally not just fighting to stay in the dance marathon but fighting to maintain a level of self-worth that will keep her from literally killing herself it's quite a second watch and i feel like what i kind of bit into earlier of like this like get on with it what's like where are we getting with this like you don't feel the weight of it you don't feel the weight of it until the end and with a second watch you have that weight with you the entire time and you can almost digest the minutiae of what's going on that's what I realized Knowing, as we were talking. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I realized as we were talking. Because because this was my second watch. So it right. felt it felt pretty different for me. It's it is wild how we can come to those realizations. And we watch these films, you know, we, you've seen most of the ones you've picked. I've seen very little of the ones that you pick. And it is such a different watch experience for your first and second time. And even then it's almost something you don't think of. Like I'll watch a ton of films nowadays and it's like, Oh, that was really good. I enjoyed that. But I almost rarely go back and watch again. Yeah. Like in the world of Netflix, it's like, Oh, let's, there's a billion things to choose from. Let's, Let's keep finding something new. Let's find something different. Let's find something we haven't seen before. And it's like, well, you kind of miss out on the movies you have seen only watching it once and then leaving it to the wayside. It, it is funny because it, it almost feels like it shouldn't be the case where the, the quantity of times that you consume media alters its... Like, it feels as though, especially with something like a movie that if you're going to get something out of it, you should be able to get it on the first go round. But it's so often is the case, especially with movies that end up becoming cult successes, like the big Lebowski, for for instance, where you Uh, constantly are picking up more jokes, the more that you watch the movie or black dynamite. Um, But, you know, we rarely think of those things with serious movies that also have tonal shifts. Once you have a complete understanding of, the story so 
definitely interesting as we continue with our rewatches, which will we have another rewatch for both of us coming up right after this. So let's get to it. Um, but real quick, final ratings and reviews for this one. This is my movie, so I will start. Second viewing for me, fucking love this. Um, I really resonated with me in the the worst and best ways. I I think this is now one of my favorite movies. I think this is such an interesting wow. movie to show to people. Oh, I love this. This is a five out of five for me. Wow. I the second viewing really had an impact on me. So uh, I understand this was a first viewing for you, but um, I will turn it over to you and then we will move on. You know, this is a first viewing three. And it's one where I know it would go up on a second viewing. I'm confident in that. It's just you do miss out on so much of the message. Not even the message because you get it at the end. It's just before you get there and kind of the the lead up to it is it's a slog to get through without really knowing the consequences and knowing the like when you're just watching a game show, you're not that invested. When you're watching a gladiator fight, you're much more invested and without knowing it's a gladiator fight it's it's a much different experience i am with you so let's move on to our second movie of the day as 1998's saving private ryan which was directed by steven spielberg written by robert rodat the film stars tom hanks matt damon and tom sizemore the film had ooh. Do you want to guess the budget? I don't. I don't know how one would be able to guess a budget from the nineties at this point. I think movie budgets and numbers are just in our twenty twenty minds in a different stratosphere of, of. So give me a guess then. I, I'm just so curious. Give me a guess of what you think. Nineteen what ninety six. Dollars, 1998. 1998 dollars. I'll say $120 million. $70 million. But adjusted for wow. inflation, it is $123 million. Yeah. Right, right there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. $70 million. Damn. Uh, so $70 million what, budget. It's amazing how much money you spend on computers. It really is. Um, the box office for this movie was... Um, $482 million. So yeah, really, really successful movie. The tagline for this film is the last great invasion of the last great war. The greatest danger for eight men was saving one. That's very wordy. That's just, uh, it's no good. Um, yeah, it's just no good. This film won five Oscars uh, in addition to um, six further nominations. The film won the Oscars for Best Director for Steven Spielberg, Best Cinematography for Janusz Kaminski, Best Sound for Gary Rydstrom, Gary Summers, Andy Nelson, and Ron Judkins, Best Film Editing for Michael Kahn, and Best Effects, Sound Effects Editing for Gary Rydstrom and Richard Hims. It was nominated for Best Picture for Steven Spielberg, Ian Bryce, Mark Gordon, and Gary Levinson. Best Actor in a Leading Role for Tom Hanks. Best Writing Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen for Robert Rodat. Best Art Direction, Set Direction for Thomas E. Sanders and Lisa Dean. 
Best makeup for Lois Burwell, Connor O'Sullivan, and Daniel C. Stripeke. And best music original dramatic score for John Williams. Uh, this film was Corwin's pick, so you can get us started. It is a fucking catastrophe. The Just a monumental catastrophe equivalent to the Hindenburg, the Titanic, and the Columbia disaster combined that Shakespeare in love beat out this film for best picture. Um, Thanks. Immediately. I'm look. I Googled Shakespeare in love. And the fact that his name is number one on that listing is. um, I, I watched this with Quinn and I was telling her how I must've seen this as a child from ages like, eight to 18, probably 20 times. Um, An eight-year-old shouldn't watch this film. Um, That being said, I don't know how, like, I don't want to put this in like my favorite films category because I know how that is, you know, very subjective and, and whatnot. But without question, this has to be among, you know, top five films objectively ever made. Uh, I know that there are quite a lot of films gunning for that category, but in my mind, I just, I don't know how you make a film start to finish that is as powerful and well done and well portrayed as this was. Uh, I I don't even want to dig into like the little things I like or anything like that, because I think it's just going to dilute the utter perfection that Saving Private Ryan is. All right, I'm coming in with a hot take. Oh, no. I did not like this movie. Oh, no. And that was wild to me because Kel and I like sat down and I was like, stupid, we're even watching this. Like, this is one of the best movies ever. Like, I've seen it a bunch of times. I it, Like, I don't even need to watch this. And then once you get past the first battle scene and you get into the plot of the movie, I forgot how bad the plot of this movie is. And I kept, and I realized as the movie was going on, really what this is, is a horrible script saved by some of the best directing that has ever been done in the history of cinema. Cause Steven Spielberg like loses his mind all over this movie. The battle scenes, all of them, are amazing. And the death scenes, all of them, are gut-wrenching. Devastating. I remember crying and fast-forwarding through almost all of them every time. Like, watching it 20 times as a kid and just knowing exactly when to fast-forward. Giovanni Rubisi's death scene is fucking brutal. It's one of the most devastating scenes in all of cinema. (laughs) It's brutal. And And it's Giovanni... Rabisi, all right. He's the villain I'm not from sitting here 10. talking. Yeah, or he's Phoebe's brother from <laughs> Friends. Like, it's not like we're talking about Al Pacino. I'm talking about a commanding, gut wrenching performance from Giovanni Rabisi. Not trying to talk shit, just to understand what was accomplished by this director. It's insane. <laughs> 
But the rest of this movie, like, I had retconned the film in my head to where the plot was, and I really, I, I, I don't, I can't think of the last time I saw it, so I don't even know how I did this, but in my head, the plot of the movie was, a general was like, we need something to increase morale for the war, so let's go save Matt Damon, um, and we can publish it as a puff piece. And instead, what happens is like a head stenographer just so happens to notice that all three of Matt Damon's brother's um, letters to their mother were being written at the same time in the same room. And there's a hilarious shot of her like, like, like adjusting her glasses and looking at three pieces of paper. Like, I just can't believe it. They have the same last name. And then bringing it to a commanding officer who brings it to a commanding officer who brings it to a commanding officer all the way up to the secretary of the military. It was a hilarious sequence of events that was so stupid. I mean, dude, this is a dumb plot. And like I... the characters point out how stupid the plot of this movie is seemingly to be like, yeah, don't think about it too hard. Like, we know it's dumb too, but it doesn't save it because it's so stupid. I will wholeheartedly agree that the woman finding the two uh, type outs of the two, the first two brothers or the second two brothers that were killed is like, wow, that's a wild coincidence. But this is based off a true story. Like, it's not like this is. This is uh, this is based off of a guy who saw four brothers dead in the same cemetery uh, from the Civil War and thought that'd be an interesting plot for a movie. No, there were five brothers who were serving on the same naval warship in the Pacific Theater who were all killed when that ship was sunk. And that's the story behind. You know, this happened in like 1941, 1942. And from then on out, all siblings were separated um, between like entire divisions to prevent these kind of, you know, family lines being severed. Like it, don't get me wrong. It's not like this is a, you know, documentary type piece about, you know, this specific Ryan family, but, you know, this is something that happened in World War II. I, I, read an article that said, and I'm looking at uh, a, a bit of the trivia from it now that says Robert Rodot came up with this, the film story in 1994 when he saw a, mem- a monument dedicated to the four sons of Agnes Allison of Port Carbon, Pennsylvania. The brothers were killed in the American Civil War. Rodot decided to write a similar story set in World War II, and the script was submitted to producer Mark Gordon, who headed to Tom Hanks, um, and then they based it off of uh, the Nyland brothers that you're talking about, but the original idea was Robert Rodot saw a civil war monument and thought that's kind of nifty and backed it out from there. Well, the, f- the further history on it, November 13th, 1942 Japanese torpedoes sank the USS Juno during the battle of Guadalcanal on board were five brothers, George Francis, Joseph Madison and Albert imagine being the one with the woman's name. Um, the Navy agreed at their request that all five would serve together on the same ship. Um, since then, it was required by the Navy to 
what's called the sole surviving sun policy um, protect to protect lone remaining family members from military duty. Um, and then the Nyland brothers in 1944. Um, but regardless, it's not like this is something that's completely outside of the realm of possibility for the army. But that's why I would have accepted it, it so much more if it was about that. If it was, we need to do something. We don't have to spend too much time on this. It doesn't matter that much um, for the rest of this discussion anyway. But that, that's why I think I retconned it the way I did in my head, which was because it's a better movie to say, we need to not destroy entire families in one go. You know, we as the, the head of the military, the secretary of the interior of the military or whatever that guy's job was, which that was George Marshall, who was the secretary of the army at the time. Right. Just whatever. Um, Just say that. Just say that's what you want to accomplish instead of being like, thank God that stenographer found those letters like that's unhinged. That was the premise behind why he read the, the speech he gave in his office after reading Lincoln's letter was we're not going to let that last brother. We're not going to let. No, I know, but let that be the start of it instead of having the stenographer be involved in all at all. You know what I mean? Like having it start off because of coincidence (sighs) rather than intention feels so bizarre. I think it would have been so much better if it was like a mail room where it's like, Oh, we're going to mail out all these letters today to the families. And it's like, Oh, holy fuck. There's four letters here going to the same household. Holy fuck. What now, the even fuck? that feels like coincidence. It would feel better if for me, if there was a room full of um, like lower commanding officers who said, I've had to do this exact situation four times in the past three days or some shit like that. And we're wiping out families. We need to do better by the families of our citizens. You know what I mean? Like having it be coincidence feels so, so lazy. And Uh, the way it's depicted in the film is genuinely comical. So, I mean, she finds the two. I just this will be the last thing I'll say on it. She finds the two that were like, oh, there was this one. Oh, I think I remember a similar address goes, finds the other one, brings it to the lieutenant who brings it to the like captain. And then, like, they talk it over and then bring together, oh, we have actually these three brothers we found, and also here's a fourth one. I get if they cut out the first part and then just had the, like, hey, we have this, this is a meeting. Sure. In the grand scheme of this three-hour film, if this is the worst possible thing we can find to talk about, just the execution of this one piece of narrative, I am so fine with that being the case. So, uh, I'm I'm not going to be a great person maybe to lead this discussion because most of the things that stuck out to me or stood out to me are, are, are things that we were going to end up bickering about. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know if you want to hear other complaints I had or if you just want to. I want to hear it because I want to pick holes at them just so I can feel better about myself. All right. I, I also did not recall this. I remember, you know, the, the pool with, with Tom Hanks, you know, like what did he do? Um, but I didn't recall them painting him as like this grizzled, mean guy, which they do a lot in the Ooh. beginning of the movie. And like, there's even a line where it's like, Sarge doesn't have a mother. He was assembled out of spare parts at some 
factory. Oh, like that. yeah. The, the, he was uh, he was assembled out of spare parts at basic or right. at um, what it doesn't o, OCS, the candidate school. And that's so weird because Tom Hanks is not playing yeah. that character. And Tom Hanks might have been trying to play that character, but then it's bad casting because all I see is the most lovable man to ever be on on a on a movie screen, Tom Hanks. And so all those comments felt so flat and fell so off base because the actual portrayal of the character they were talking about is literal, actual Tom Hanks. And it See, did not connect. I, I, again, find fault in that because we never actually see him act on any of those, you know, like he's never once shown as being mean or angry or, or heavy handed. The only time that's ever the case is when they uh, they charge the machine gun nest and Giovanni Rabisi has his moment. But I wholeheartedly think that was just like, hey, we're a bunch of guys in the army walking through a field. We have to complain about something like I feel like that's just a soldier's mo rather than them actually complaining about this captain of theirs that by all accounts every actionable piece that we've seen from him is utterly caring and understanding and you know positive with every interaction with his men (laughs) you're doing a lot of work to make up for what are some very relatively small holes in this movie my friend i am saying that is beyond the scope of what one could could assume from watching this film you're doing a lot of legwork for it (laughs) i'm saying this as an expert in my field which is this movie that you are wrong (laughs) i will also say that and this is my last of my minor complaints. There's a lot of weird comedic beats in this movie that I found to be so wildly inappropriate because they d- also didn't land for comedy. And they felt so, so out of place that they felt wrong to be there in the first place. Like what? The one that sticks out to me the most was Tom Hanks not being able to figure out the espresso machine. (laughs) And he does a weird slapstick, like Charlie Chaplin routine with the espresso machine trying to get it to work. And he kind of just like breaks it and then leaves the room. But like they spend, it's gotta be a good, like 90 seconds on that scene that is supposed to be funny. And it's just not, it's just not at all. And it was so weirdly out of place and quickly moved on from like it felt like a a shot that would have been like Biloxi blues or or like a different like like an 80s um uh you know like a fucking David Spade's in this movie kind of beat and instead it's in the final moments before the uh final battle starts and it just and there's a few of those like scattered throughout the movie that I just found so odd it's the calm before the storm you know like it's not it's not this john wick thriller where every scene is you know another set piece um it's a bunch of dudes kind of like all right our prep work's done we're hanging out we got nothing else to do but kind of sit 
shoot the shit. All right, we're getting to know each other. All right, these are human beings. Like, they're just normal people fighting this war. This guy's a fucking school teacher, for Christ's sake. All right, shit, I could use some coffee. It's fucking French thing. I, I thought it was the right amount of comedic relief for what is a very long final fight scene. And I think all of the combat pieces and and major set pieces leading up to this almost need those kind of periods of downtime where, you know, they're shooting the shit walking through a field or, you know, they're sitting outside that spot where he was making cafe, the, the espresso in the cafe and, you know, just talking about music or whatever it was. It's like, you need those pieces because a, a three and a half hour or three hour action sequence is so stressful. And it's just like mainlining Adderall or cocaine. Like you are just on edge the entire time. And I think it's just one of those comedic relief points that you need to kind of relieve the tension to let you breathe before that final piece. Because that final piece is almost like half an hour long. Like it is a long fight. Yeah, and that's the the interesting thing about the movie is is it's um it's what an hour like 30, 30 to forty minutes at the top, right? For that fight. Yeah, it's a long, long stretch. So let's call it thirty minutes just to keep all the numbers even. So it's thirty minutes at the top with that fight, thirty minutes at the bottom with that mm-hmm. fight. So if we take those two out for a second. It's about an hour and 15 there's, in the middle. There's like 30 minutes in the middle where they're in that rainy city with, you know, the sniper and Caparzo and they meet up with those other soldiers. And like three 30 minute fight scenes, I would say. I, I also, for some reason in my head, greatly exaggerated uh, the role of, of Barry Pepper in this movie. For some reason, I thought he was a way bigger character than he was. <laughs> Like, I don't know why Barry Pepper was like a huge part of my recollection of this film, but he is not a big part of this movie. I I had no idea his name was Barry Pepper. That's a different character. It's the the, the sniper. Private Jackson. Oh, my God. Yeah. Barry Pepper. I I thought you were talking about his character, not like the actor's name. No, the actor's name is Barry Pepper. Yes. I Googled it and have come to that. But yeah, he's that's Barry Pepper. Um, yeah, I. And that's part of the, the, the other kind of problem, larger problem I have with with the movie, which is the characters barely exist in this movie. Which yeah. is, well, again, a big credit to Steven Spielberg for what he's able to accomplish with the meaningfulness of their death scenes. And the small moments that he is able to give them a sense of humanity, you know, with the passing along of uh, Vin Diesel's note, you know, that has that carries a lot of weight. Um, and obviously the the emotion of guys like Adam Goldberg and, and his feeling uh, towards the Nazis coming from a place of, you know, uh, this is happening to my people kind of feeling. Uh, but by and large, guys like Barry Pepper barely exist in this movie. Vin Diesel barely exists in this movie. Um, Edward Burns, who has like a pretty big part in this movie, I he really is just there to, to be like, fuck you. And it's like, all right, guy, like I get all the points you're making here, but there's nothing to 
the, the emotional weight of the characters is really solely built upon Tom Hanks. And, and honestly, Tom Hanks doesn't even really connect to any of the guys in any kind of way outside of Tom Sizemore. And I thought that their relationship was done really, really well, but the relationship to everybody else. Uh... I think that that's almost how it has to be because it's not like, you know, he's the company commander. He has, you know, over like he's got like 120 guys under his command these are just seven other random dudes other than his first sergeant that he has with him like he's not going to know them all on the same level that he would with tom sizemore but i think even with that being set in place the fact that these are guys that he just kind of knows on like, it's like guys who work in like the next department over, but like still sit in the same vicinity of you in the office. It's like, yeah, you know them, you'll, you know, joke around, like you have a relationship with them, but like, it's not the team you work with on a day-to-day basis. But doesn't that fly in the face of the speech that Tom, that uh, Tom Hanks gives to Tom Sizemore, which is like, I've lost 93 men in combat and, you know, I, I, I have to justify my actions or I have to justify their lives by saying that I uh, saved the lives of 200. You know, he really, really well, made a point to say, like, those guys meant something to me and their deaths meant something to me. But he doesn't show that level of connection with any of the guys that are actively following him around. It, it, it's a weird well, I think character there's a- he plays. I think there's a very big difference between being the commanding officer of a, a unit in the army and having 93 of the men who are following your orders every single day be killed and not having, you know, a close friendship basis with the lower enlisted men in you know, that same company. It's like, you know, like you don't have a, I don't know, because your department was like three people, but like I'm I know my vice president. I'm on a fairly positive relationship, you know, with my vice president. It's not like we're ever hanging out and getting a beer together outside of like a one off, you know, occurrence. But if I fucking died at work, I imagine that would weigh heavily on his shoulders. Right, but I I would think that the connections formed at war are stronger than the connections formed at a a job site or an office base. But this is their first time in war. Like the two of the two, uh, Tom Sizemore and Tom Hanks served in uh, at least Italy together, possibly North Africa. For the rest of these, you know, enlisted guys, this is probably the first combat they've ever seen because this is like a full year after the those other events. Well, let's I, I do want to hear your positives of this. We don't have to spend the whole Everything. time on my negatives. I will. Um, I know you had some things that you said you wanted to mentioned specifically some of the small stuff Uh, last last complaint i have that is nobody's fault is that and i said it i think the other day on our sports podcast which i cannot separate tom sizemore from his appearance (laughs) and it's always sunny in philadelphia and every time he was on screen i kept looking at him and thinking about all his lines and gonna go into that room and you can split me open like a 
Just, oh my God. Every time he whispered, I was like, I will not be sucked on by you and I will not suck on you. And I just, oh God, it just killed me. But anyway. Uh, what's that guy? What's his wrestler's name in that episode? He's not a wrestler. He, he's a truck driver. Oh, I thought he, that was his wrestling role. Like when he was the crazy wrestler, like Mad Dog. Oh, no. You're thinking of, um, you're thinking of uh, Roddy Roddy Piper and his appearance as uh, Maniac. Yes, the Maniac. Which is hilarious because if you watch roles. any of Roddy yeah. Roddy Piper's Rowdy Roddy Piper's acting performances, it's just him playing the main. Like that's just who he was as a as a person. That is just Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, it's hilarious. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, give me some some deets that you enjoyed. So I know it's you know counterintuitive to what we just talked. Not even counterintuitive, but just counter to what you just said. But I I really liked how they portrayed all of the you know, brotherly bonds between the guys on this mission. Cause I think, I don't know, maybe it's just me knowing the kind of foundation of how, you know, these units are laid out, but you know, the fact that there is this captain that, that clearly cares deeply about the eight guys he has left under his command that he has a bond with, and is just doing whatever the fuck he can to get everyone out alive while also just doing his job. And the internal struggle that he's faced with throughout this film. And I mean, I don't think we need to dive into the technical side of this. Just you said it yourself. Like this is just such a perfectly directed film. I don't know how anyone else could even top it, but between the directing the acting which is just all around superb um like even guys that you just can't help but utterly despise like opum is like it's it's that same discussion of understanding and um what was it not remorse but um what was the term we were just using like you don't feel bad for him but like you understand where he's coming from empathy yeah, uh, there was one specific that we were using. It doesn't matter, mm. but like, yes, the fact that he's just standing by while all of this is occurring and, you know, he's unable to kind of press himself into the fight and he's not able to take control of himself, take action and allowing others to die is just utterly gut wrenching and just ties your stomach in a knot. But sitting back and looking at the situation he's in where it's like, this dude is, this guy has a typewriter that is like his weapon of choice to bring into combat. Like, he is not a fighter. He is not prepared for this. This is not what he signed up for. I imagine there are a lot of people watching that film who even they were like, yo, fuck up and fuck that guy who wouldn't be much different their first time ever experiencing combat that closely just the trauma that comes with it, the the utter shock you're put in, um, just all of the different aspects and the different ways that you're both affected and, and you view war while you're in it in just a, sh- a relatively short time frame, I thought was so well done. Um, I don't, I, I just don't know how you make a better movie than this. Uh, better plot. Touche better plot what did you sorry one other 
complaint, sure. honestly, while I was you were saying all that. It's, or one thing I found odd that I also hadn't thought about before seeing it again was the dog tag scene. Mm-hmm. Did it seem weird to you that Giovanni Ribisi had to be the one to be like, hey, you fucks, knock it out, and not Tom Hanks? Like in it, a sense. It felt like, like I, and for some reason, I thought in the in my again my retcon of this film that tom hanks was the one who said that and then it wasn't in a sense yeah it makes it like you can reason why it is like at that point they've just gone through you know that first day of fighting they just start on this mission you're almost you know mentally removed from the situation where like those dog tags don't feel real like they're just pieces of metal stamped and if you look at it as just all right we're just digging through this pile of of dog tags like okay we're looking you know a very horse blinders on like hey we're just looking for this one specific name and not realizing it from the sense of giovanni rabisi's character who is the one that removes the dog tags from these guys and is the one who is hands-on having these guys die in his hands repeatedly. You know, he was the one on the beach with the wounded repeatedly having them die in front of him. He's the one that removes those dog tags and understands the consequence of what it means to have all of those collected in a bag at a much closer level than any of the other guys. It makes sense for why he would be the one to snap, but yeah, I totally understand why it's like, oh, Tom Hanks, you're you're the one in charge. I'd probably, hey, you should be the one doing that. On the other hand, it's also like these are just people. Like you lose, not lose touch, but lose perspective when you're under this much strain for this long of a period of time continuously. Well, I I think that's what. That kind of oscillation, though, again, between him feeling some level of disconnection to the troops, his troops, while also later stating very explicitly his connection to the troops and specifically their deaths, that constant kind of ebb and flow of using that when I need to seemingly for plot convention is one of the reasons it felt kind of odd as a viewer, you know? It and felt like, like it was, which one do I need right now to make this scene work? You know, it's almost played devil's advocate. It, it's not like those were his men per se. Like it wasn't the guy he guys he was training with for a year. Those were just names in a bag. I, I totally get where you're coming from, but I, I can still stand on the other side. All right. Well, um. I don't know what else, because it, it, it's tough to even talk really about like the ending of this movie, because the end is once again a, a big momentous battle scene, much as it's beginning. It um, There isn't necessarily any large scale growth we can really take away from it. There's the small scale growth with Matt Damon, where seemingly this battle kind of matures his thinking. Uh, and and shapes the way that his character then goes and lives the life off screen, the life out of the European theater that we are not privy to. Um, although I will say, his old his wife did a horrible job in, in her one scene. <laughs> terrible, terrible acting by her in that scene. Like oh, old man Matt the, Damon in the, in the grave. Oh yeah, yeah. 
old man Matt Damon looks at her and he is killing it. Whoever old man Matt Damon is killing sure it's it. Matt Damon. It's not Matt Damon. I'm pretty uh, sure it is. I'll I'll look, but I, I refuse to believe it. Um, and he, he looks at him. Look, he looks at his, at his wife, yeah, tears in his eyes and goes, tell me I've lived a good life. And she looks at him like he just told her some wildly outlandish shit. And she nearly rolls her eyes while he is crying in the graveyard by the by the the grave marker of his commanding officer and says, yeah, of course you did. And then walks away. <laughs> wildly bad acting. <laughs> Hey, did not hey. understand the character at all. That was a 1950s housewife. That's the stereotype we believe. It's just hilariously poor reading of your character's motivations because it's like you traveled out to Europe with the family. It's from our perspective, seemingly just to do this. So no, she wanted to go to Paris. This was just a detour on like their third day. Just. Oh wildly bad acting but anyway um harrison so it, young it's tough was to the get... actor's name by the way say again harrison young was the old man gotcha in the sea um so i don't know are there any other specific points or anything with the conclusion of the film that, that you'd like to to tie into before we move into ratings and reviews i just don't want to clip you short um i thought um uh what's the guy's uh, uh, the actor from Felicity that played the first James Ryan. What's his name? Played the oh, first. That's on the James tip Ryan? of my tongue. Yeah, the guy they find that they think is uh, James Ryan, but it isn't. Oh, uh, um, no idea. Ah, uh, shit. What's that guy's fucking name? Got me there, buddy. Um, whatever. He sucked. He was the worst. Oh, n- nice. Yeah, he was just like the, yeah, whatever. I'm dropping. It. I can't even think of the guy's fucking name. Nathan Fillion. Fillion. Yes, thank you. Nathan Fillion. I didn't, even, role, Nathan I didn't Fillion. even in, in, interpret that as him. I didn't even. I. Wow. I. <laughs> I much prefer your commanding officer, Mr. Ted Danson. Oh, dude. For, <laughs> forgot Ted Danson was in this movie. Forgot forget- Paul Giamatti was in this movie. I always remember Paul Giamatti is in it. The guy that you mentioned earlier, the sniper, I thought you were talking about Paul Giamatti's character. Sergeant Hill? Yeah. But I oh, always... forgot Dennis Farina was in this movie. That was a weird one, too. Dennis Farina? Yeah, he plays Lieutenant Colonel Oh, Anderson. yeah, yeah. AKA See, I, like the, the bad guy yeah. from Snatch and Get Shorty. Yep. Ted Danson always just throws me for a loop. Cause like I remember all of the faces of all these other guys well. And like when I first like was watching this, like the first 10 years of me watching this, I had no fucking idea who Ted Danson was. So like he was just a guy. And then, you know, knowing how fucking famous Ted Danson is, it's like, yeah, that's just Ted Danson, man. He even like stands, like he's like, I know. I'm Ted Danson, and I know my shit does not stink. But yeah, it's also that's funny all I to see him in I'm a sorry. movie after you know. Once you understand who Ted Danson is, to even go and say, "Oh, Ted Danson, the TV guy." Ted Danson, <laughs> who I don't know what movies he's done, 
because I only know him as the NBC guy for his entire life. Yep. Mr. Uh, NBC. <laughs> you want to tell me that's Ted Danson money? Ted Danson <laughs> signing that deal? <laughs> anyway. Uh, I didn't realize he was married to the mom from Step Brothers. Sure. Nice. Uh, all right, let's do final ratings and reviews then before we get into next week's picks. So, Corwin, what is your movie? Um, I'm going with uh, another inspirational piece, uh, 2008's The Wrestler. Oh, my God. I haven't seen that in forever. Never seen it. Okay. All right. 2008's The Wrestler. Well, you also didn't give a final rating and review for oh, Private Ryan. So I don't six out of, that you hate it and we're moving on. Six out of five. Give me a real star rating. Five out of five. All right. Yeah. Um, it's wild because if you asked me before we recorded this, I probably would have said four and a half. Um, it's just like a three, three and a half for me now. I'm gonna say three wow. and a half. I really I'm shocked too. Boldest, I did not come into this movie expecting to hate it. Boldest or really not hate yet. it, but um to not not love it. Not love mm. it. However many negatives is correct there. I was surprised too. Um, anyway. Uh, it's a, it's a, next week's going to be uh, a big week for 2008 because Corwin's picked 2008's The Wrestler and I'm going to pick 2008's Happy Go Lucky. Uh, you can find The Wrestler on HBO Max. You can find um, The Wrestler on Amazon Prime. Sorry, you can find Happy Go Lucky on Amazon Prime. Check, uh, check him out before we record or don't. Not my problem. Uh, in the meantime, in the next month before we get that done. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. We do not post very often. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Josh If you send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthenumbers at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye. Uh-